We're going to do a Calvin, a John Calvin conference in September because this is his uh, 500th birthday this year. And the theme of it is called With Calvin in the Theater of God. I mention it only to put that picture in front of you. For him, and I think he's right, the world, the universe, is the theater of God. There's where the drama is enacted that's all intended to display the glory of God. And God has two books, therefore, two scripts. That's the way I've set up some of the lectures in that. This is, this is the authoritative one <clears throat> to tell us what we know is true. The rest of the world is another book. It's not the authoritative one because it's ambiguous, we, but we can read off of it a lot of things about God. On the way here this morning, I don't know if you saw the sun dogs, this incredible thing. Here's the sun coming up, this is about 35 minutes ago, uh, and then on either side, these golden parentheses that happens very rarely. I've only seen it twice in my life. And Nathan commented that the Lord is bracketing the sun. It's like, in case you didn't notice, there's the sun in, in between these two, these two parentheses of gold. Awesome. One of the points that I'm going to make later is that we stir up joy in our lives by attending to the witnesses in the world to God's glory. Not just the natural world, but the social, political, human, cultural world. So I, I wrote a blog a few days ago. No, it's, it's, this, it's this Taste and See article this week called The President, The Plane Crash, and The Patience of God or something. Because, frankly, I cannot get over that plane crash. I mean, it's just taken me. I can't believe that this plane going at two or three hundred miles an hour at this angle and these geese flying at this angle should find that exact millisecond where one goes into both engines. That's impossible. And shuts them down totally. And then the plane lands on the water and floats 77 tons of steel with his belly full of fuel floating long enough for every person to get out with a scratch on a few legs. I mean, this is God. From beginning to end, God is speaking. If you have ears to hear. I can take Jane's planes down, and I can belly planes up. I can take you out, and I can save you, Mr. President. Wake up, America. Repent while there's time. I'm a God of great mercy and great power. And then this morning, I'm just giving you illustrations of how I think watching the world stirs you up. This morning, I don't know what nurse news services you use, but 
when mine clicked up, just have a, have a thing where the headlines come up. And the headlines come up, and I, and I was just so moved by this model in Brazil who died yesterday. Anybody know about this? Mariana Britti. And uh, it's just as well that I don't know her because I'm sure she didn't have her clothes on most of the time. Um, she's 20 years old and she's dead. She got sick in December and they amputated her hands and her feet a few days ago. She went into the hospital in January 3rd. She was a runner-up for Miss World from Brazil twice. So you're talking gorgeous body, right? And she's dead after her hands were taken off and her feet were taken off because of a bacterial infection they couldn't get under control at age 20. Beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. How vain it is to live for external beauty. I mean, it's nice, right? It's nice to have it. It's nice to see it. But good grief, it's not the point. And it will do you no good when you're 20 and they're taking off your hands. And she probably, she, when, when that happened, she probably just said, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm not going to live. So you read the news, you watch the news, you look at the sun dogs, you just stay alive to this theater of God. And then you put it all through the sieve of this book so that you make sure you're interpreting it correctly and you let it have its appointed effect. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding Joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Isn't that a great phrase? I will go to God, my exceeding joy. That's what I want for you so much. I want you to, when I'm dead and gone, a lot of young people here, you're going to live 50 years after I do. Think of it. 40, 50 years after I'm in heaven. And my great desire would be if I'm allowed to just peek down and see some of you in 30 years standing in front of somebody or talking to your kids and saying, God is my exceeding joy. Father, I pray now as we move into this session, you would awaken our hearts. Lord, I know that there are people here all over the spiritual map some probably not even born again, not quickened to spiritual life so that a sentence like that does anything for them. So God, do saving work and sanctifying work and joy-giving work and sin-defeating work in this room, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we have two units to move through. And we'll do them in three sections, I think, or more, depending on how we cut it up. But number six and number seven in your outline is where we are. The grand obligation, the pursuit of joy, arguments that it's biblical, and how then shall we fight for joy?
I don't think in the times I've taught this seminar I've ever finished it. And oh, how I'd love to finish it. But that's a lot you can see on the sheet there. That's a lot of pieces to get through. And they're all so juicy that it's hard for me to pass over them too quickly. So here we are at number six, the grand obligation. So here's, here's the idea. We've just made the case, partly, or at least we've tried to explain Christian hedonism as the truth that since God is most glorified in us when we are deeply satisfied in Him, therefore, pursuing satisfaction in Him is a duty. It should govern all of our lives because that's the way he's glorified. Now, we have not looked at very much Bible. We looked at Edwards and Lewis and, and uh, my pilgrimage. But now, from here on out, it's all Bible with a few quotes sprinkled in. Because the question is, is all this talk about the pursuit of our joy and God being glorified in our joy, is that really in the Bible? That's all that matters in the end. My opinions don't matter. My pilgrimage doesn't matter. But God's word matters infinitely. So what we're going to do is look at, at text. But can't help but start again with uh, another Lewis quote. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial. But not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our cross, crosses and in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. Now, I can remember. This is, this is taken from the weight of glory and other addresses. I should have brought the book along so you could actually see the, the very book. It was 1968, the fall, first session of Fuller Seminary. I'm madly in love with Noel Henry and engaged and will be married to her on December 21 of that year. But now it's September and I'm in Pasadena and she's near Chicago and she's finishing school so we can get married. And not have school behind us, in front of us, for her. And I was lonely and moody and walking Car uh, Colorado Avenue. And I walked into Vroman's bookstore. And went to a pile of books, from these special tables. And this book, The Weight of Glory, I'd never seen it, was lying there. I knew C.S. Lewis, I'd read Mere Christianity, and that's about all in college. And I picked up this blue book and opened it to the first page. That's this page right here. My life has never been the same since. This is what he says. I couldn't believe it. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, and I certainly felt that way. <laughs> like, uh, self-denial is to 
denying the desire that you have. If there lurks the notion that the, the to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of our desire or good is a good thing, I submit this notion crept in from Kant. Isn't that interesting? We saw him before. And the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. I said, whoa, you're kidding. You really believe that? Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer up a holiday at sea. We are far too easily. That was gold. That was gold. Amen. That's Christian hedonism. Is it biblical? That's the question. Is it biblical? Argument number one. The answer is yes. Arguments matter. Remember Dr. Fuller, who was helping me see these things in those days, he just had a great point. He said, read commentaries and read books, but don't pay any attention to their conclusions. Only assess their arguments. Anybody can draw a conclusion, false, true, crazy. If you just read a book for conclusions, if you collect opinions, what are you going to do? Base opinions on counting noses? Arguments is what matters, not conclusions. So, I'm giving you arguments here, about 15 of them. I forget how many there are. Number one, there are biblical commands to pursue our joy in God. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. Psalm 33. Sing for joy to the Lord, O you righteous ones. Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his joy presence with joyful singing. Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. These are not suggestions. These are commands. Which is why Christian hedonism is both liberating and devastating. Number, number two, there is a biblical threat if we will not pursue our joy in God. 
Deuteronomy 28. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you will serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. I remember reading, I think it was quoted in Lewis, a quote from Jeremy Taylor. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And I read that thought, that's clever. And it was years before I saw this sentence in the Bible. I said, it's not clever, it's biblical. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And he says to a pastor, you're supposed to serve the Lord with gladness. If you go moping through your ministry, oh, it's hard to be a pastor. Oh, there's so much sacrifice in the ministry. Oh, what a burden I carry for all of you people. Eventually, you're all going to be sick. You're going to be psychologically sick. That's what pastors who feel like that do. They produce sick churches. If you want a church to be healthy, according to Hebrews 13, 17, you have to be happy in the ministry. And of course, if you're not happy and you try to look happy, then you produce a hypocritical church, which means reality has to happen. I mean, fish are cut bait. You're out of here or you love God. Argument number three. The essence of evil and sin is to pursue satisfaction outside God. Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shudder and be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Now, what are these evils? One, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and two, they are hewing out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's a great definition of evil. Somebody says, okay, you Christians, what do you think evil is? They think, well, homosexuality and, you know, abortion. and That's what they think. And we should say, no, no, evil is being offered a fountain to drink from and turning from the fountain and putting your face in the dirt and, and licking the dirt. That's evil. That's what it says. My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken the fountain and are trying to make broken cisterns hold water. And they won't. Scratching at the dirt... Oh, where's the water? Where's the water? Where's the water? That's the world going after everything but God. It's got to be here somewhere. Happiness has got to be here somewhere. A lot of money. And there's God holding out his hands full of everlasting, satisfying water of life. So mark it. The definition of evil in the Bible is to forsake the joy God offers and find it elsewhere. That's the definition of evil. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. 
That's the literal translation of Romans 3.23. And I take lack to be a reference back to Romans 1.23. We have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the creature. That's the definition of sin. To be offered God, like Adam and Eve were, and to choose independence and self-assertion over the enjoyment of our Father's provision in the garden. That's sin. So don't define sin in terms of a bunch of do's and don'ts. Define sin in terms of anything you find pleasure in more than God. And most of them are innocent idols. Most sin is not adultery and drunkenness. Stealing. Most sin is delighting in innocent things more than we delight in God, and thus making idols out of them. This is why this is so devastating. Argument number five. The affections, which is the old-fashioned 18th century word for the emotions, are biblically essential to Christian living. So I'm responding here now to those who say, this Christian hedonism stuff elevates the affections or the emotions to a place where the Bible doesn't take them. The Bible talks in terms of service and duty and sacrifice and self-denial and obedience. And you're now talking about all these emotions, which are neither here nor there. They rise, they fall, they don't count. This stuff really counts. Let me tell you another story. Junior at Wheaton College in a class on apologetics with Millard Erickson. Millard Erickson was at Wheaton in those days. This had been the fall of 67, probably. And we read Joseph Fletcher, Situation Ethics. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that book. It's an old book. It's not a good book, but um, we had to read it and then argue with it. And one of the arguments I can remember in the book was love cannot be an emotion, cannot involve the emotions, because it's commanded in the Bible. And you can't command the emotions. Therefore, love is willpower. You can command the will, but you can't command the emotions. That was the argument. And I remember at the time, since I didn't, I didn't have a lot of theological... I just I grew up in a Christian home and I absorbed Bibles. It's just so wonderful to absorb a lot of Bible. Because if you raise a kid to absorb a lot of Bible, and he's not a theologian, he's still just oozing Bible, things will smell wrong even when he can't articulate why they're wrong which is very good because that will help your kids avoid a lot of stuff because he'll just he'll go with his nose if he can't you know articulate it with his mouth this smells wrong what's wrong with this there's something wrong with this argument I'm not buying this argument and I couldn't quite figure out what's wrong with this argument now I know what's wrong with that argument 
one of the premises is false. Okay, if the argument goes like this, love is commanded, premise one. Premise two, you can't command the, the emotions. Conclusion, Aristotelian syllogism. Conclusion, therefore, love is not an emotion. Okay? Good logic, false premise. The second premise is false. Emotions are commanded all over the Bible. That's why I say, oh, of course. <laughs> I've been reading this Bible for years and years, and this man saying you can't command the emotions? Watch. <laughs> Don't have any covetousness is right at the heart of the, of the uh, law. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. What, what's covetousness? It's bad desire. It's desiring the wrong stuff in the wrong way. Don't have it. Stop having that emotion. That's the law. Contentment. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. You anxious? Discontent? Stop it. <laughs> what? You tell me to stop it? This is a feeling. Contentment is a feeling. How can I stop being discontent? You're telling me to do this? Yep, he's telling us to stop. It's commanded. Fervent brotherly love. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. He's not just saying, exert the willpower of doing good things to people, and we'll call it love. He's saying, fervent from the heart. Feel it. That's what he's saying. Hope. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. You're commanding hope from your soul. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober hopefully in the grace that is to be brought to you. A command to hope. Hope is an emotion. It's not just a conviction. Like, I know Jesus is coming, and I feel zero hope for it, and zero desire for it, and zero expectation of it, but it's a knowledge thing. That's not hope. The devil knows the Lord is coming. <laughs> he doesn't open it. Fear. Luke 12, 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. So you don't fear God, you better. And that's an emotion. Peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. Peace is an emotion. So feel it. Zeal is an emotion. Do not lag behind in diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Be fervent in spirit. If your spirit is lukewarm, languishing, Stir it up. Start being fervent. Sorrow. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be an empathetic person. If you're a callous person and you get around people who weep and you don't feel any empathy with them, start feeling it. Isn't that amazing? So I, I'm just kind of wondering, where did Joseph Fletcher read? What did he read? <laughs> well, that's, there are so many theologians who write books without reading the Bible. They really do. You've got to be really careful. I have a friend 
who got an MDiv, that's MDiv, this is terminal degree for pastors, got an MDiv at Yale Divinity School and never took a New Testament course. Not, not Greek. I'm not talking a Greek New Testament course. I'm talking any New Testament course. This is 25 years ago. I don't know what they do today. But I heard that and I thought, yep. Yep. Desire. Newborn babies, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. So desire is commanded. Tenderheartedness. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Okay. That's a sampling Two more. Gratitude. Uh, speak to one another psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, always giving thanks for all things in the name. And our fighter verse for this week, I think I'm learning the wrong fighter verse. I'm learning be thankful in all circumstances. Is that our fighter verse for this week? It is? I'm, it starts up at... Okay, I'm learning. Because on my little uh, missionary calendar, it starts at be thankful for all things. At any rate, that's the point. Be thankful in all circumstances is a command. Gratitude is a feeling. You know that, don't you? I hope, hope none of you are saying, these things aren't really emotions. Well, wait a minute. When your grandmother, your mother, gives to your child a gift at Christmas that he doesn't like, like socks. She would never do that, but let's just say she does. Socks, and the child opens the box and pulls out the socks. At that moment, the child, having learned duty, will say, thank you, Grandmama. <laughs> but if it's a fire truck, he will feel thank you. And there's a difference between the words, thank you, and gratitude. Gratitude is commanded, and it is felt or it's non-existent. Lowliness also. Okay, enough. So there's argument number three, or whatever it was. Namely that Christian hedonism, in taking the affections as high as they do, in saying that they are mandated and they are what glorifies God, we are not elevating them to a place beyond where the Bible takes them. The Bible commands emotions all over the place, which is why, by the way, the, all these are necessary later on how in the world do you pursue that? Because you're sitting there, like I did so many times, feeling devastated that Half of those emotions that I just listed, you aren't feeling right now. And you wonder, well, will that mean I'm not a Christian? I'm not an emotional person. I'm, I'm a Minnesotan. <laughs> You're from South Carolina. You got Latin blood or something. Those are real questions. When you, when you read the Bible and you're wired a certain way, you can feel devastated. So we'll get there. I'm just making it hard for you right now. Number four, an essential element of saving faith 
is being satisfied with all that God is for us. An essential element of saving faith. So look at Hebrews. Well, let's just go to, to John. Pick one text. Keep moving. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now notice the parallel. Coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are, are parallel here. I think they mean the same thing. This doesn't mean you have to traverse some geography. This means right now in your chair you could come to Jesus. That is, your heart moves toward Jesus. So the question would be, in what way? How? What, 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 is, what is this believing? It is a coming to him for the satisfaction of your hunger. It is the believing in him for the slaking of your thirst. So my definition of faith is a coming to Christ in my heart for satisfaction rooted in all that he is and all that he does. I don't want to leave out the cross. I don't want to leave out his glory. Just when I, when I, when I believe, believe in Jesus doesn't mean just believe facts. It means I'm moving to come to him and I'm embracing him as my hunger remover, as my thirst satisfier. I think that's implied in those words, hunger and thirst, come and believe. So I think if you study the nature of saving faith, you will find that it is not mere cognitive, it is affectional in that it rests in Jesus as our Savior and our treasure. Number six, argument number six. This is all arguments that the pursuit of joy as necessary to glorify God is biblical. Number six, the meaning of conversion is the God-given awakening of delight in the glory of God. So I'm arguing that conversion in the Bible, getting started in the Christian life, is the awakening of desire for God above other things. So the key passage, I'm just going to skip over those and go straight to the key one right there. Matthew 13:44 One verse parable The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field Now the nature of parables many of you know is that you don't press every detail to correspond to some reality. You look for the thrust that corresponds to reality. So it would be a terrible mistake to say you buy the kingdom. The point of this parable is when King Jesus shows up, he appears to the converting person as so precious that everything else is worth losing to have him. 
That's the point of the parable. And that's what conversion means. When that happens to you, you're converted. You become a Christian. We've intellectualized becoming a Christian to the point where the devil can do it. Decisions, decisions, decisions without heart, without treasure transfer in the emotions. Everybody has a treasure. If you're an unbeliever, you treasure stuff besides Christ. Hundreds of them. When your eyes are opened, this is called new birth, resulting in conversion. When your eyes are opened to see Christ as a treasure hidden in a field, all these other things, wedding ring, grandfather's clock that your grandmother left you, home, family. Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. Why would he talk like that? Ooh. Terrible, terrible to say something like that, isn't it? Well, he's trying to get across that if you don't love me more than you love mother or father, if you don't make some moves in life that are going to be interpreted by the world as though you hated your family, then probably you don't know me, you don't love me. Being a Christian really is radical. Christ really is our supreme treasure. And so... I think to try to define Christianity without the pursuit of joy in him is contrary to the nature of conversion. This text, Philippians 1.19 following, is probably the most important text for defending the sentence, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's the, the banner that flies over the Christian hedonism. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Give me a text. Give me a text. Where do you get that thought? So here's, here's the text. Let's read it. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus according to my earnest expectation and hope. So this is what Paul really, really wants and hopes, that I will not be put to shame, so that's a negative side, not be put to shame, but with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, will be magnified in my body. That's, what he, that's his goal in life. Is it yours? That Christ will be magnified. That means made to look magnificent. You, you don't look magnificent. He looks magnificent because of the way you live and die. That Christ would be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So there's the goal set up. I want Christ to be magnified. So we're trying to find the sentence, Christ or God is most magnified in us when what? That's the goal. I want him to be most magnified, most glorified. And Paul says, that's my desire. I want my life, my body, my whole soul in life and in death to make him look magnificent. For 
to me to live is Christ. Now, that corresponds with life here. Live. And to die, and die corresponds with death. All right. So what he's doing in verse 21 is explaining and supporting that statement that he just made about his passion. I want Christ to be magnified in my body, in my life, and in my death. And then he explains how it's going to happen. Because to live is Christ. And to die, and then here's the key, it's gain. Now, just take the, the death pair and read it. I long for Christ to be magnified in my body when I die. For to me to die is gain. That make sense? Paraphrase. Christ will be made to look magnificent in my dying when in my dying he is experienced as not loss of this world, but gain. That's my basis. You come to die... Hospital, battlefield, mission field, lying on the side of the road after a car accident, whatever, you're going to die someday. You may or may not have any chance to think about it ahead of time. When it happens, maybe so sudden, you're gone. Most people have some time to think about it. A few weeks, years, minutes. At that moment, or in that process, for, for Paul, he got his head chopped off by Nero. So he had some time, an hour or two, as he's walking through the processes, going out into the place of execution. He has some time to think about this. God, I want you to look good here. I want you to be seen as magnificent here. Now, how do you do that? What would make God look magnificent? Answer, experiencing him as gain. So, if your whole orientation at that moment is, I'm losing my wife, I'm losing my kids, I'm losing my stuff, I'm losing my health, I'm losing my retirement, I'm losing my fame, I'm, I'm gone, I'm losing everything, wah, 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 wah. How's Christ look? You're just about to meet him. He looks pretty not valuable, not magnificent. But if you're satisfied in him, if you, if you look at all the world, there's my wife and there's my kids and there's the dream for retirement. That's not going to happen. And there's the stuff that could have been written and the sermons that could have been preached. And it's all gone in an hour. And there's Christ. <laughs> what will the nurses see? What will the doctors see? In you, will they see you saying, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of going home to him? Gain, gain, 
lost gain. That's the argument. And so my paraphrase is, Christ is most magnified in my body when I, when I come to die, am most satisfied in this gain. And that's what's taught in that text right there. You want Christ to look good in your dying? Experience dying as gain, not loss. Number eight. Love for people is the overflow and expansion of joy in God. Now, this one is so uh, important and so big, uh, I'm inclined to think we should probably take a little break here because if I start it, then uh, we might not be able to make the tape switch. So we'll come back to this in just a minute.